Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Calling all surgical education junkies, Behind the Knife is looking to add two new fellows to our team. We are thrilled to be adding these positions. We've got so much great content in the pipeline that we don't even know what to do with ourselves. I'm talking big time projects that are going to make a big impact on surgical education. We've got specialty oral board review, medical student education, digital education research, and a trauma surgery video atlas, just to name a few. We're looking for a couple of enterprising surgical residents to take the bull by the horns and spearhead one of these major projects, not to mention help with the podcast, video, and other ongoing, exciting, behind-the-knife goodness. We are offering a two-year fellowship starting July 2022 and ending June 2024. Only residents beginning their two-year research time will be considered, and the residents, institutions, and the mentor must approve of this fellowship. Check out the show notes for the application link. All applications are due May 25th. So welcome back to Behind the Knife. We're the UNC transplant team here with another episode. And uh, I'm Megan. I'm one of the third-year residents. I'm Sasha. I'm one of the second-year residents. I'm Guy, one of the fourth-year residents. I'm Alex Toledo, one of the transplant surgery attendings and the uh, surgical director of the kidney transplant program. And I'm David Gerber, one of the other transplant surgeons and the uh, chief of the division of transplantation. So today we're going to discuss a topic that's recently made a lot of headlines, uh, xenotransplantation. So in January of this year, a team from the University of Maryland transplanted a genetically modified pig heart into a 57-year-old man. That patient unfortunately passed away two months after transplantation. However, it was still a landmark event in transplant surgery. Dr. Gerber, I know you have some experience from Pittsburgh with xenotransplantation. Do you have anything to add? Yeah, no, this is um, actually a great story because this has really been going on and people have been talking about xenotransplantation in some form or another for literally the past century. Not that I've been training for a century, but we shouldn't be lost. um, No, so, you know, and going back in the, obviously the driver for xenotransplantation is the shortage of available donor organs and the timing of getting those organs for patients based on their acuity. So when we were at Pittsburgh and liver transplantation was really taking off, there was a big interest in exploring xenotransplantation. So we did, um, I recall, the first baboon to human liver transplant, which was a technical success. The challenge that we faced was that we weren't sure how much immunosuppression to use at the time, and we probably over-immunosuppressed the patient because he ended up succumbing to um, atypical infections in the period. But it, it has really launched from there the ongoing interest that we've seen over the last 30 years in xenotransplantation with more of a focus towards porcine transplant. And people ask the question, you know, why do porcine when you have non-human primates that we are closer in relation to from a genetic and immunologic standpoint? And this is where I always say ethicists can make their living just sitting next to transplanters because that debate has gone on and on. But because uh, pork is part of the diets in some parts of the world is, is tolerated, there is a more of a welcoming approach to porcine donors. Um, hence, we have pig valves. We also have cow valves. 
um, in the cardiac surgery space. So it almost got into an issue of what would people be able to tolerate it. And honestly, it sort of put the, how should I say, from the translational bit, it sort of slowed down the thought of trying to use or, or cultivate a community of either non-human primates, baboons, for, for donor source material. So very exciting. Now, the last caveat to this is that the cardiac surgeon involved in this xenotransplant was at the University of Pittsburgh around that same time that we were doing a lot of this work. So um, just bring it full circle. So Dr. Toledo, and nowadays we have so many advances in uh, transplant surgery and transplant medicine. Why do we need to uh, look for other options of organs? Well, that's a great question, Guy. I think the main thing that we have to keep in mind, the context is, is that there's a massive organ shortage for really for all solid organ transplantation. So when we look specifically, let's just for instance look at kidney transplantation, the wait list is between 90 and 100,000 patients routinely uh, are on the list and those patients on the list about we had, we can expect when you look at all comers for dialysis survival is only about uh, 60% so there's a 40% attrition rate at three years on dialysis for all comers so you can see just with those two facts alone you can see the uh, appeal and the, ur the urgency for transplant and you can also see the appeal for a new avenue that is going to increase our donor source. So that's sort of the drive for um, xenotransplantation. And those same numbers you could look at, you could look at liver uh, transplant, deaths on the wait list, same thing with heart transplant. Um, all those organs, we're going to run into the same issue of a, a massive organ shortage. And in that context, xenotransplantation has always been alluring for as long as transplant has been around. Uh, but I think this article highlights a lot of the recent advances that make it uh, a more realistic option in the future. So since xenotransplantation has been around for a while, what have historically been some of the issues with it? Uh, so in two big areas, so one of the issues, and again, depending on which model we're using, but since we started talking about the porcine xenomodel, the pigs have a natural endogenous protein, a carbohydrate antigen, that you know we have an antibody to this gal alpha gal. So that has really been for a, more than a decade has been one of the major hurdles for us to get across because that would lead to truly hyperacute rejection and thrombosis of the graft. Yeah, that carbohydrate. Uh antigen that uh, Dr. Gerber was talking about is expressed on the vascular endothelium so it elite, it very quickly is sensed and uh, activates complement activates you know all our uh, cytokine storm basically and it's we're going to end up with that hyperacute rejection so the main things that the main hang-ups I guess for xenotransplantation are that is early uh, early uh, thrombosis of the graft through that uh, carbohydrate antigen. Also, a big concern has been the um, retroviruses, porcine retroviruses. Um, another big concern of is long-term would be transmitting those viruses and making sure there's safeguards and uh, genetic knockouts to uh, prevent that. Right, and this is especially pertinent in the time of the pandemic when we talk about zoonoses, 
which we didn't think we'd use that word too often, but we do. If you get into the field of Xeno, that you do have to be concerned about what will cross, what, what is tolerated in one species and can cross over to another and be pathogenic. So these are issues that the FDA and other regulatory bodies look at very closely. And for folks who've gotten into the Xeno field, those are things they've had to address, both, you know, as Dr. Toledo yeah. said. And I think sort of all this behind the scenes over the course of a generation has sort of culminated in this study where, um, you know, hopefully these um, early coagulation issues are addressed, the uh, infectious issues are addressed, and then also with some genetic edits, some immune modulation, uh, so the complement system isn't overly activated, sort of sets the stage for a trial like this. So getting into the article, the article we chose to discuss today is called The First Clinical Grade Porcine Kidney Xenotransplant Using a Human Decedent Model. This came out of the University of Alabama by Dr. Locke and was published in the American Journal of Transplantation. So the background of this is that the University of Alabama actually has a xenotransplantation program that was started back in 2015. This article specifically describes that first clinical grade xenotransplantation in vivo using a human decedent model. The primary goal was to address the core safety questions using this specific decedent model as this is new. Efficacy measures were collected as tertiary outcomes as the model was a brain dead donor and they didn't necessarily expect this to adequately support renal recovery after transplantation. The, re the renal xenografts were procured from a genetically engineered pig with the modifications, um, the genetic modifications that we talked about before, so that way they didn't necessarily spark coagulation and um, were better helpful with immunomodulation. The pigs and the recipients underwent histocompatibility testing before transplant, and additionally, the pig tissues underwent viral testing to help prevent that zoonosis or other viruses that, you know, we might be concerned about crossing over from animal to human. So now that we talked a little bit about the background, Guy, can you tell us a little bit about what surgical technique that they use? Yeah, so the kidneys were procured in block from those porcine donors, uh, and bilateral native nephrectomies were performed on a brain-dead donor uh, with open standard technique to establish amuria and allow those kidneys to be used for allotransplantation. Daily methylprednisolone taper, anti-thymocyte globulin, and anti-CD20 were used as induction immunosuppression, and for maintenance, uh, mycophenolate, tacrolimus, and prednisone. For the back bench, uh, those in-block kidneys were separated and pre-implantation biopsies were taken. They were all noted to be grossly normal. However, they were softer on palpation and had an extremely thin capsule and reduced structural integrity when compared to human kidneys. Also, the ureters were noted to be larger in diameter. The right and left kidney were transplanted separately using conventional uh, allotransplantation techniques. The right ureter was anastomosed to the, the bladder, and the left ureter was brought to the skin to an end urostomy. Moving on to results, for the transplant phase of this experiment, both kidneys were seen to reperfuse quickly with good color and turgor. Doppler signals were obtained and were normal in the kidney parenchyma and in both renal arteries. After reperfusion and during the entire operation, there was no significant bleeding encountered, and the donor remained stable on minimal pressure support. 
The right kidney made urine within 23 minutes of reperfusion. Uh, the left kidney made scant urine throughout the entire experiment. So big takeaways from the transplant phase of this experiment was that there was no hyperacute rejection. Post-transplant, the patient developed multi-organ, uh, multi-system organ failure over the three days post-transplant, so results should all be interpreted in that context. The study was terminated eight days post-brain death and 77 hours post-reperfusion. The abdomen was explored on post-op day one and post-op day three, and again, good turgor and adequate Doppler signals were observed throughout the parenchyma at all time points. The right kidney made a total of 700 cc's of urine within the first 24 hours, and again, there was scant production from the left kidney. Um, A post-reperfusion biopsy of the left kidney um, showed mild to moderate acute tubular injury and normal glomeruli. A post-op day one biopsy showed thrombotic microangiopathy with diffuse glomerular capillary congestion. On post-op day three, there was evidence of progressive tubular injury with extensive acute tubular necrosis, and wedge biopsies obtained at termination demonstrated no evidence of cortical necrosis or interstitial hemorrhage, and and glomerular capillary congestion was no longer diffuse. So what are the big points to take away from this article? The first is that Genetically engineered models, as demonstrated by this experiment, were sufficient to prevent hyperacute rejection of the kidney. Another unknown point going into this was whether the blood pressure differences between human and pig would be too much for the donated uh, porcine kidney to overcome. However, the once implanted, the kidney survived the increase in pressure after being anastomosed to human circulation. The patient, as mentioned before, remained hemodynamically stable after reperfusion on stable doses of low-dose pressors. A few technical notes from this experiment. Um, Another point to highlight was there was no evidence of retrovirus transmission. The team at uh, the University of of Alabama chose to implant both kidneys as the nephron mass uh, required to support um, human renal function is unknown, uh, translating that from a porcine model to a human model. Um, And finally, serum creatinine did not decrease, and neither kidney excreted significant urinary creatinine, and it's unknown if this is due to the kidney integrity or the donor environment. So now that we've discussed the article a little bit, um, Dr. Toledo, what do you think are the really big highlights or next steps, or what makes you really excited about this study and, and the future directions? Well, I think this was really a landmark study for everyone in transplantation. I think we often, you know, with current organ transplantations and success rates and one-year survivals that are well into the 90s, we sort of lose track of something that, uh, something that is, you know, disruptive in a good way or something that's uh, innovative is going to take some time and go through the same steps that everyone else did with their models. For instance, we, you know, it's easy to forget now that Starzl and Hume and all of the Murray, all the, um, all the pioneers of organ transplantation 50 years ago when they were doing the first human-to-human transplants and didn't have sophisticated immunosuppression and they struggled and went sort of stepwise with we've got one day of survival, we've got two days, we've got the patient living a week and a month and slowly we ramped our way up. So I think we have to look at this through that same lens when it's early in its progression. And there's certainly a lot of successes to celebrate in this work, and I think the, the first is obviously there was no hyperacute rejection. We talked about that before, how big a deal it was to have early uh, thrombosis and coagulation issues with the graft, and this, there was no hyperacute rejection. 
Uh, one of the kidneys made urine. The, um, there were no retrovirus transmissions or, or chimerism uh, seen throughout the study. And even though the graph didn't clear uh, creatinine, it did make urine, and it gives us the sense that we've made a, a ton of progress. And there's still obviously a bunch of challenges out there, which um, which we can talk about as well. And some of those would be that, like we said, that yeah, there was no creatinine clearance with this kidney um, or kidneys in this case. Um, there was the biopsies uh, looked concerning uh, for some early uh, complement activation and some. Um, there's probably a, a question of whether these would have been, you know, the study was stopped after four or five days or in that range, but um, those biopsy findings lead you to wonder if there's any real long-term viability. Um, and there's certainly a lot of room for progress in that regard. But I think probably the highlight that I come out with is not that so much, but more sort of the successes that this genetically uh, modified uh, graft was able to uh, function in the short term and ha and clear a lot of the hurdles that historically we've never uh, been able to clear. And um, I guess when we look, uh, Dr. Gerber, I don't know, I'm sure you can sort of piggyback on that and sort of look to the future and say what would the next steps be for um, moving sure. xenotransplant forward? Yeah, no, that's a great segue. Thanks, Dr. Toledo. Couldn't have come up with that better myself. Um, no, it is. This is, to your point, right? This is really transformative in the transplant field. It does open things up. It was a very well done study because, well, you know, again, we don't know what porcine kidneys will do in humans. And this gives us a 72 hour window. And remembering, it's not in a perfect model because it's in a donor who's a, a brain dead donor. So organ dysfunction is ongoing and these kidneys are being challenged. I think certainly what we see in this paper is very encouraging for allow us to get to the phase one clinical trial, which is the next study to be done. And remembering, you know, we have to go through several steps to be able to get this translationally to patients in a broad scale, but just to be starting with a group of patients that maybe aren't eligible for whatever reason, aren't good candidates, suitable candidates for human kidney transplant, um, but could benefit from some renal supplementation. This is an, this would be an exciting step for us getting to that phase one study and then phase two, three studies afterwards. I think the field was the fact that this and we briefly touched on you know, the, the heart transplant at Maryland and the prior porcine kidney transplant at NYU, the fact that these all occurred in a six-month time frame where literally we have had a 30-year vacuum is very exciting. We, you know, and we're really at the start of the climb, you know, uh, of a breaking out into the forest, so to speak. We're breaking out of the forest. Yeah, I think, yeah, when you put all those together, it really uh, feels like... Uh, we're sort of at the uh, cusp of another uh, another cycle of innovation yeah. within transplantation and, and uh, specifically xenotransplantation. Right. Uh, and I think the other thing, the un other interesting thing I think that comes out of this study is um, the decedent model of using this uh, brain dead, um, I guess was also, was a donor and a recipient really, right. but using this, this brain dead uh, right. uh, patient uh, is a relatively new model, and I think uh, we could have an entire separate podcast, right. as you mentioned before, about the you know ethical uh, 
components uh, issues, of components of that. And there had been a lot of talk about donor-related research because that is sort of their avenues. And I think this is a very creative way of looking at this. That you know, and to your point, right? Everything we've seen before in xenotransplants has been a series of an N one. It's been one-offs. To have three cases like this, I think certainly in our careers we will see this start to you know, blend into the field. I, I don't think we are suddenly going to wake up tomorrow and be ordering organs for transplant the way we do grafts and other valves and other devices, but I think this will be impactful before we retire. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.